0: Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. If it's inspired you and you're able to support this podcast starting at just $1 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. With this being an independent platform, I am looking for more support to be able to continue the show. So thank you so much if you're already a patron. It helps a lot and I really do appreciate it.
1: We have an interdependence and we, we have lost touch with that in some ways. We've lost touch with our interdependence with other people and uh, failing to see the, our responsibility to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And we fail to see our interdependence with nature.
0: That was Nick Buxton, a climate justice activist, a communications consultant at the Transnational Institute, which is an international research and advocacy institute committed to building a just, democratic, and sustainable world, and the co-editor of the book, The Secure and the Dispossessed, How the Military and Corporations Are Seeking to Shape a Climate-Changed World. This is part one of an extended two-part conversation, so stay tuned here as we're about to first explore why the prominent use of the term security, like water security, food security, border security, may be at odds with our goals to seek for climate justice, how large corporations and our government may already have lesser-known plans to address climate change, but not in the ways that we would want nor expect, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
1: For me, I grew up, I had one of those childhoods where I grew up on the edge of a town, and so spent all my time in fact my mom would just kick me out of the house and we would spend a lot of time just out exploring the fields and forests and doing things that kids don't always have a chance to do nowadays because kids are kept more and more closer to home and closer and closer in urban environments but I could just got in a chance to explore so I always I always out of that have a love for nature and I think things started to crystallize for me uh, later on in my life about the loss of the environment um, really, when I went to Bolivia about 15 years ago. And that was really where climate change started to kind of rear up in my my vision, because Bolivia is an incredible country with glaciers surrounding some of the big cities up on the highest peaks of the Sierra Nevada. And there was a glacier just above La Paz, where I was living. And this is a glacier that was expected to disappear in 2025. And I was there in 2004. And in, by 2006, it had gone completely. Mm. That was really shocked me to see that this thing that was predicted sometime in the future was happening right here now. And this was in a city where 20% of its water comes from, from glaciers. So, So that really kind of made me feel that this climate change is something that's not something out there in the future and something that we really need to be treated much more as an emergency and responding in a way that the world really hasn't been responding adequately.
0: Mm. And how would you define climate justice and how did this come to be your focus?
1: So I, th- I, th- I think this also comes from that experience of being in Bolivia is that, that Bolivia is, is a country where you see people living very sustainably just because they have so little. I think that the amount of emissions an average bolivian produces is is way less than a ton whereas in the us it's 19 tons mm. of emissions that uh, an average person in this country will emit so so here's a country who uh, where they have none of the responsibility for the crisis and yet they're already starting to feel the impacts first and that to me is is an issue of justice because it means that those who have no responsibility are bearing the impact. Then, what is our responsibility as citizens in a country that is emitting so strongly? And, and this really kind of comes together with my view that we have an interdependence, and we we have lost touch with that in some ways. We've <clears throat> lost touch with our interdependence with other people. And uh, failing to see the res- our responsibility to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, mm. A- and we fail to see our interdependence with nature, the way that we are fundamentally depend on nature, the way that nature is not just crucial for our living, for the medicines we take, for the food we eat, but also even for our happiness that we know that psychologically, if you spend more time outside. Uh, you will feel better for it. So so all these, I think this has come together really, that we need to rediscover that interdependence with both people and with nature.
0: It definitely feels like our disconnection from other people and from nature is leading us to make more individualistic decisions. And then by further becoming more individualistic, it's making us even more disconnected and making us forget the value of that interdependence and relationship with other people and with nature.
1: I very much agree. I think, I think that's something also I realize in Bolivia where there is a very strong indigenous, the majority of people identify as indigenous there. There's actually a very strong ethic and a historic ethic of living there where people, and they even talked about it, that the value of life is not to live better, it's to live well. Mm. And you can only live well if you actually care about how your actions impact on other people. And if you're trying to always get more rather than just live well, then you're going to start to have a destructive relationship, both with nature and with people. And so there was a there was a very I learned a lot by living in that country about a a different way of being and the values that we kind of incorporate and think of as normal in Western societies, are not necessarily universal. Mm. They're not universal. They're not held by everyone. And we can we have a lot to learn from listening to other cultures where they've got those things much more in balance.
0: So, in the trailer to preface the book that you co-authored with Ben Hayes, titled *The Secure and the Dispossessed*, you ask a few questions that are quite distressing. You ask, "What if the world's leaders have decided not to tackle climate change?" What if they've decided that it's easier to deal with the impact than to tackle the underlying causes? End quote. What did you learn specifically or experience that sparked these questions for you? And is this closer to being hypothetical or is this closer to being the reality?
1: Well, those are questions that after I lived in Bolivia actually ended up um, at one point in 2009 asked to help with the media support for the Bolivian government delegation going to the UN climate conference in 2009 in Copenhagen and so I went to that summit and there was a lot of hope and I think a um, expectation that that conference uh, it was even dubbed Copenhagen rather than Copenhagen <laughs> would actually start would actually start to have a, a really proper collective intergovernmental response to climate change. Uh, and I was there and I just saw a lot of, a lot of, I would say there were political games by the most powerful nations where they were doing everything possible to stop taking responsibility and to stop taking action. There was lots of fine speeches, but when you looked at the actual negotiating and what they were agreeing to and what they were trying to get out of the text in terms of binding commitments, it was clear that they did not act. And it just made me wonder, well, these, the, No one there was a climate denier. No one there was saying that we don't have a climate crisis, we don't have an environmental crisis. Everyone was on board. There was not that kind of denial. But then they were not following up with that, with actually taking action. So I just said, well, it just started to raise the question, well, if they know the science is going to have these impacts and they're not acting, what are they planning to do with the consequences that we will face? And that's around about that time, I started to talk to some people who are involved in analyzing security strategies. And I started to realize there are groups who are planning for the future because that's part of their responsibility. And particularly the military, the military has to make long-term strategic plans. And also the largest, the largest transnational corporations who have, often have these kind of forecasting units that will look long-term. And so then I started to look at those strategies and realise that there were really there were plans for dealing with the consequences. And my question, as I explored the book and we worked with others, was: What are the plans that have been made? Are there plans to deal with climate change that we that we agree with or that we're critical of? And, and that's really where the, the book started to explore those explore those questions and to and to say: What kind of future do we want if this is not the future that's been laid out for us?
0: Mm. So countries like the United States and corporations like Shell, they do have long term plans up to the end of the century for how they're going to deal with climate change, but not in the ways that we would expect or hope, because if I'm not mistaken, their plans largely have to do with the consequences of climate change, and not so much on preventive measures today to safeguard our humanity against the conflict and disaster that the climate crisis can induce. So, I mean, through your explorations, what were some of their long-term plans?
1: In terms of what are the plans, what what really kind of comes through, and there's a there's a sim an interesting kind of parallel between both a, a long-term corporate plan and also a long term military plan. And that is that they both see the world in terms of security, and scarcity, they say that climate change is going to lead to fundamental shifts, there will be shortages of certain things there will be, uh, whether it's water or food, or whether there'll be uh, there'll also be kind of conflicts that will arise out of that scarcity. And therefore, we need security. And so a corporation making long-term plans around supply chains will say, like, how do we ensure that supply chains continue to get the goods from here to another place? In terms of shell, they were looking they rather than trying to tackle climate change, they were looking at what would be the impact on rigs of bigger storms from the oil drilling. They were saying we can how do we can continue our business model, which of course means more extraction of oil, and maintain that as things become more unstable. Or as pressure builds for action. And the military were looking really to look in terms of conflicts. They were seeing conflicts as rising. So you'd have more conflicts in certain countries around issues of perhaps water. You'd have more migration. And therefore, how do we defend borders? And how do we keep shipping routes uh, safely conducted? Uh, And so there's this whole language that emerges, which is around scarcity and security. But the answer to that then becomes very much two things. One is how do we maintain uh, the economic system as it is, which largely means securing those who already have wealth. So it's around securing securing those, what we already have, rather than looking at who will be most impacted by climate change. And it also leads to a very much militarized response. So migrants become a threat uh, coming across the borders. And conflict becomes a threat. so we need more military to defend to defend ourselves in other parts of the world. And it creates it, it, the, the disturbing picture that starts to emerge is a very dystopian one, where we're almost building um, huge walls around ourselves. Uh, we're turning, and some people have called it the politics of the armed lifeboat, where basically we're building our own kind of secure place, but completely armed. Mm. And that's that's a really disturbing vision but it comes when you start to see everything in terms of a lens of scarcity and security so as, as we start to look at that and uh, those kind of things we also ask some of our authors to say well what are other approaches that we can take in times of crisis because there's no doubt that climate change and environmental crisis is unfolding in a way that will have impacts but are there solutions we can look for which don't have that lens of security and s- scarcity because Coming back to the issue of injustice, and if those who are least responsible for climate change are facing most of the impacts, there's a, another injustice laid on. If we start to then see those very people who may have to leave their country or may have to change their lifestyle as threats, uh, suddenly there's, so they're not only, they're only not responsible, they now become threats that we have to defend against rather than those who are most vulnerable and will need the most support. And so we really need to, the book is really a challenge to kind of flip this on its head and say, instead of looking at this through security, we really need to look at those who are vulnerable and and are there different ways that we can be compassionate and sharing and respond in a way that involves um, solidarity and and love and uh, tackles the causes of climate change rather than than just dealing with the consequences in a very um, self-serving way.
0: What part of the concern here, or I guess part of the argument for framing it as a security issue, be that national security seems to always be a top priority agenda for policymakers. So by posing this as a security issue, it may then be passed, or more things that can help us address climate change may be passed in in the government.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there is a, there's a religion in this country about national security. It's, uh, you can't really argue with security who can be opposed to security, but you have to ask who, who who's it security for? And, and is it real security? Mm. The United States has the largest, spends more, seven times uh, well, basically, the amount of military spending the U.S. spends on the, mil- the military is is equivalent to the next seven countries combined. Wow. So we have a huge, and and we have there's something like 800 military bases around the world. So a huge amount is put into the security, but it hasn't really. You have to ask, well, has it has it worked? We're now in the longest war we've ever had, the one in Afghanistan. Um, how many years is that? That must be about 20 years old. And it's still not one, as it were, we've had conflict getting worse in a lot of the Middle East. And I don't think people feel necessarily any more secure in, mm. in this country, because security doesn't come from that kind of military spending, people feel secure, if they feel uh, levels of trust with their neighbors, if they if they have a job, the things mm. that actually make people secure are not are not tied to that military, but they they're, they're dovetail together. National security becomes tied with anyone's security, and and of course we see this whole this whole narrative playing out right now because fear is a very mobilizing tactic, and we see that with the current government where where there's almost I mean the president almost every uh, every day says something which is around based on fear of invasion um, of of migrants, and, and it's a it's a mobilizing. It's a mobilizing tactic, that kind of thing about security. But it's it's like a bit like a beast, a monster that you can never feed enough because it doesn't matter what happens. We happen to have 700 miles of walls. It te- we happen to have the most, one of the most deadly border infrastructures in the world. But the talk is always of more security, of us being invaded, and so on. So it's a fueling dynamic that will leads to a huge boom in expenditures. Uh, whether that's military or whether that's border police, but very little security that anyone will ever feel. In fact, the more you talk about security, the more insecure people feel.
0: Mm. I mean, without even denying or questioning the science of climate change, it sounds like large corporations and uh, the U.S. governments and maybe others as well are making these long-term plans in terms of how they're going to deal with the consequences of climate change, so, so the social unrest, increasing conflicts, and etc. Why is it that we haven't really heard about these plans? And specifically, are these plans continually being made by the current administration, which publicly denies the science of climate change?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think in terms of the military it's It's surprisingly little talked about, even if it's accepted as as generally, and there's very little questioning of the amount of money that goes each year. it's it's a it's almost become a kind of untouchable shibboleth that you don't that you don't question. And so very little is actually analysed unless you happen to be a scholar in this in this area. So it's something that needs a lot more discussion. year after year you know, we have troops in Afghanistan, and there's very little discussion about why are they still there. Um, mm. So so there is, there's certainly a huge omission in the public debate about it. And it's hard to fully understand why that is, but it's, it's certainly there. And I think um, your second question was,
0: are these long term plans to deal with the consequences of climate change such such as predicted social unrest, maybe global mm. conflicts. Are these plans continually being made by the current administration, even though they publicly deny the signs of climate change?
1: Yes, they are still being made. There's some there is a definite planning always going on. There's kind of war game scenarios and there's planning uh, around how to how to respond to climate instability. One of the things that's happened as a result of the the kind of denial about talking about climate change as such is that it's been talked about in different ways. So they won't talk about climate change, they'll talk about extreme weather events or instability in the weather and so on. So there's there's some slight changing of the wording, but the military is still, it, it is still planning for these events. And that's not just happening in the US, it's happening. But you'll only notice it in the richest countries because they're the ones who kind of have this national security framework, which is that we have to defend ourselves in this instability. Mm. So, so that planning is going on everywhere. In the U.S., it's just happened to be done in a slightly different language because of the overt denialism that comes from the top.
0: Right. This is a scary thought that I had. What if the current administration is intentionally denying climate change science to stall preventive measures now because they know that the dispossession of the majority is how they and others currently in power and with the most wealth can continue to maintain their power? Is this like a valid question to ask?
1: It is, it is a valid question to ask. It's. I don't think it's, it's deliberate. I more see it as a continuation that... I really think what we're seeing unfolding on the border now is one of the, pa- in a sense, should be a warning sign of one of the paths that we can take in in a moment of climate crisis. If you look at the numbers, are actually not high; they're not no, not the highest we've ever seen. So there's a lot of fear about numbers, which isn't true. But what you do find when you do ask people who are coming to the border right now is that. In quite a few cases, particularly from Central America, there's been an unprecedented drought. And climate change certainly feeds into that. So people are desperate. They've not had a good harvest for three or four years. And if you're living already on the, on the edge, then what do you do? You can move to the city or you can move somewhere else, but you have to move. And so so people are going to, we are going to get more migration, both within states and across borders and that's just one of the consequences we're going to have this also in this in this country as sea level rise hits certain communities people will have to move and that's going to put pressure on other cities so we're going to get changes that we're going to have to deal with and and what we're seeing on the border unfolding now is is really what is really one response to that which is to say that those who are, are fleeing are threats mm. they're invaders they're the enemy they're the ones who are threatening our way of life we have to defend against them. Um, and and you then pump a lot of money into into the infrastructure that guards against them. So if you look at border security funding, it, it's gone up by something like 2,000% uh, since the 1990s. Um, so this is not just under Trump, but it's been an infrastructure. And there are lots of companies that are also benefiting from it, and they also help drive it. So when we look at both in the European Union and also in the U.S., You'll see that there are certain companies that actually benefit from this of course the arms and security firms and the it firms mm. and they're they they're very much lobbying within the government and and we did a big report looking at the european union and we found out that three arms companies were one of the main ones both kind of create, uh, lobbying for policies for harsher border controls and then winning most of the contracts and we have a very similar picture going on here. So so that there will be this response which is a very militarized response to climate change. And that's one path we could take. But it's not it's it is is that the path that we want to take in terms of climate change? And I think that's a, it's a very disturbing world that I think actually the vast majority of people when they sit down and think about it, say, No, that's not how we want to respond. Mm. And we know that actually in times of disaster, and in times of crisis, the more predominant human instinct is to respond with love and compassion and with solidarity. And we, and we see that time and time again here in the U.S., but also elsewhere. So we, we saw a bit of both in Katrina when there was the huge hurricane. You had a kind of militarized response, which where well, you sent in troops that had just returned from Iraq, as it happened, and then came back and were sent in to stop looting and ended up shooting people. Uh, But then you also had others from right right across the state sending out boats, fishermen going and rescuing people and and a huge community response, people in their streets organizing and saying, okay, who's the one in our community? Oh, there's an elderly woman down the road. We need to go and check on her first and street by street organizing in a very, in a very profoundly um, caring way. And, Mm -hmm. And so I think that human instinct is actually stronger, but we, but it will only kind of surface if we if we give it space and also if we say that we don't want a militarized response. Um, we see that in in terms of migration as well. There's huge responses by people, border communities who live there, who respond very differently to the way that some of the politicians in Washington, D.C. would like to respond to migrants in, in Europe when when there was a huge crisis in Syria, which was obviously a war, not necessarily climate change related, although there is evidence that climate change played a part. People, the very initial response before some others tried to manipulate it was a very hugely compassionate one, people welcoming me on train stations and uh, and an amazing response, particularly from Germany, which um, embraced over a million, up to a million refugees. So there are times when we can actually respond in a very, in a very positive way um, to crises. And there's a great book, which I recommend by... um, Rebecca Solnit, who actually looks at kind of five emergencies that have happened in the US. It's called Paradise in Hell uh, and shows that actually it's in moments of crisis that you a- actually see more uh, utopian societies emerging, that that our imagination is broken down about what's possible. Mm. Um, and I think it's very much applies to your, your slogan as well of a green of green dreamers is that is that in moments of crisis, we can actually dream bigger sometimes and and have really quite profound human responses. And out of that experience of working together have come very kind of important community initiatives that continue. So we see that in paradise right now. There are some really interesting community initiatives now going on to say not just how do we recover from the fire, but how do we build a different kind of community where where we have more say in the kind of energy we use and the kind of farming we have in this community and the kind of housing we have, and how do we build stronger community links together in the rebuilding? So something actually, you know, has a it's a struggle, but it has something more beautiful has a chance of emerging.
0: Absolutely, it definitely it gives us an opportunity to, first of all, question everything that we thought were truths and to dream up like what it is that we actually want for ourselves. So I love that you brought that up. In terms of our government, I mean, why is it actually easier for them to just deal with the conflicts that may arise, the social unrest, the economic costs later on? Why is that easier than attempting to prevent all of this to begin with? Is it because it's more expensive to take action now? Or what is what is holding us back from taking more preventive measures?
1: I think you have to follow the money. And this is where there's a very corrupting influence of money on politics. So um, we, we know that those, the largest money presences which exist in Washington, D.C. And this is, I can tell you the same story from Europe as well, are uh, the fossil fuel industry. And so actual real... Effective action, actions to kind of limit fossil fuel use on, on the scale we need is blocked because they have so much influence over the politics that goes in Washington D.C. and also the military. And so they they, they are quite happy for us for a, a, a response which is based largely dealing with the impacts and the consequences because that gives more more money towards the military industrial complex. I think it, I think we really this is where we really have to look at the influence of of corporations over public policy because the the interests of security or the interests of fossil fuel or the interests of the largest corporations driven by values of profit and by values of, of of security above actually humanity means that we we have this fundamental conflict going on about the future that we want um, which is opposed to the future that most people want so that's why those have to be at the heart of any any response to climate change. So we have to address the corporations who seek to profit from climate change, because if there's people making money out of climate change, then uh, they're going to continue the path that they're following. And if we want an alternative, we have to get them out of the way.
0: This concludes part one of our two-part conversation with Nick Buxton, and you can look forward to the rest of this conversation in the following episode, where we're going to talk about the military-industrial complex and its impact on climate change, how an era of permanent war between countries led by our political leaders may be taking away the resources and attention needed to address the real crises that people on the grounds are facing on a day-to-day basis, and more. If you're able to support the show starting at just $1 per month to support this work, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. As always, you can find the show notes at greendreamer.com. You can subscribe to Green Dreamer on YouTube by going to greendreamer.com YouTube. And you can come say hello to let me know you're tuning in on Instagram at Green Dreamer Podcast and at Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in today and I will catch you soon in the next episode.